It's just after 6 o'clock and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. We have a very packed program tonight. This episode of Too Much Information is very packed, so let's get to it. In the background, you're listening to sound art. This particular piece is called A Bell for Every Minute. And this one is from Jana Windegren. These are a few pieces from a show that's currently up at MoMA called Soundings. And joining us now for a few minutes to talk about it is the curator of the show. And that is Barbara London, who is the assistant curator, Department of Media and Performance Art. Hey, Barbara, welcome to... Associate curator. Oh, associate (laughs) curator. Sorry. (laughs) Hi, Barbara. Welcome to WFMU. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. So, sound art, is this something that uh, has long been owed its due or something that museums are are starting to get more into? Well, I think museums have followed sound art a bit and maybe did one-off kind of things where, for example, I did a show with Laurie Anderson called The Handphone Table way back in, like, 78. That was a while but ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a while ago, and not everybody's going to remember, and you probably weren't <laughs> even born then. Um, I was so, around. Yeah, museums have done kind of one-off small things. So slowly, I think, you know, now everybody's wearing earbuds, everybody, you know, is recording with their phone. Um, so sound is very much on people's minds, and sound art is definitely out there and out there very internationally. Yeah, it seems that uh, uh, the cast that you have in this show is very international, but they also seem for the most part mostly younger. I mean, and that's I guess yes. why I was asking about, you know, sort of like this coming up new. It seemed like most of the artists you had uh, were younger. Yes, I did. that was a, uh, um, what do you say, that was a very conscious choice. I thought... Many other people have done historical shows, you know, maybe a bit in the past, but there's a lot of younger activity, and I wanted to put younger artists on the microphone. So, indeed, probably the oldest is uh, maybe 40, 41. Yeah, so let, 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 let's talk about some of them. Um, I think, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, pieces in the show is almost like you're in a rave. It's this amazing room of yellow and static. Can you tell us about that one? Who's, who's the well, artist You're there? talking about the work by Harun Mirza, yes. an artist who lives in London. And indeed, it is a very comprehensive installation, not very big. It's larger than a closet, much larger, but... It's called Frame for a Painting. So you walk in, and on your left is a beautiful kind of pattern of sound, you know, absorbent material, you know, a kind of foam. Dead on straight in front of you is a gorgeous Mondrian painting. And around that, it's a real Mondrian from the MoMA collection. And around that is an LED frame, and that electrical pulsation of the lights changing go along a wire into a kind of Danish looking you know um, a bedside table uh-huh. and there's a bicycle light and a little processor is inside and a pair of speakers on the table so the red light goes and the sound goes and then when that kind of quiets then just the electrical current in the LED frame causes a hum. So it's very much an environment that you're um, ensconced in. Oh, yeah, and it's also very, very visual. I mean, just listening to you talk about it reminds me why I had so much fun hanging out in that room. But, uh, you know, for thinking about sound art, I mean, there's a lot, there are many pieces in the show that are quite visual. I mean, and I'm not even talking about the ones that are just visual yet. (laughs) Right, right, right. So there's another work that's visual and consists of inaudible sound, and that's Karsten Nikolai's very beautiful work called Wellenwana, and that has a very thin trough of water on the top. It's in glass, and it's got these four armatures that come over the water and little pads touch the surface of the water. That all is causing this inaudible sound causes this amazingly beautiful concentric 
circle patterning on the surface of the water. But you see that yeah. um, because it's reflected through a mirror at a like a 45-degree angle, and then that's on the front of the, um, you know, structure surface. Um, Karsten studied architecture, so he designed a very beautiful, you know, um, like f- five by five foot by four um, structure. Yeah, it seems that so many of the pieces intersect with other disciplines. Um, can you talk a bit about um, Jacob Kierkegaard's piece, which you know has a very conceptual bent to it? But wow, it's another one of my favorite ones. Yeah, Jacob studied visual art, but mo- about music, and he's from uh, Copenhagen, lives now in Berlin. So this piece he made a couple of years ago, he got permission to go into Chernobyl, which is, of course, a very closed, off-limits area. He went in with the permission, chose four different spaces, a gymnasium, a church, um, a, you know, and a school, and what he did in each of those um, abandoned, dusty, kind of falling apart spaces is he put a, uh, a video camera and a sound recording apparatus in, put, pushed record, left the room for 10 minutes, came back in, stopped, rewound the audio. So what you get is a silent room then that becomes just full of the sound of itself. Meanwhile, then back in his studio, he tweaked the visual to kind of degrade in a parallel way to what was happening with the sound. Yeah, so, I mean, on the one hand, it's very conceptual, but it's also sort of like uh, meta-field recordings. Exactly. (laughs) And it's also meta-field recording and also a real cry in a way so that we don't forget what we do when we create, say, um, these nuclear power plants or when we've got an oil spill, um, what happens. Yeah. So there are a number of works in the show that have no audible component to them. And, and some of them, you know, like, I guess, if I'm pronouncing her name right, Camille Normand? Right. Yeah. Can you talk about hers real quick? Because that one just immediately is an amazing visual piece. that right. I can. S- Cam- So Camille is born in Detroit, lives in Oslo, and does actually perform music with a glass harmonium, which, you know, people used to use in the 19th century to call up uh, dead spirits. You know, you could talk with your great aunt or something, maybe. But anyway, um, here she took an old-fashioned microphone, one that Elvis or Billie Holiday would have used, and she removed the inner mechanism and put in a light and she has that light pulsating so it i mean yeah so the microphone is on a stand on a tiny pedestal and because of the light and the pulsation it casts a shadow that to me reminds me of a rib cage so then i think of the ghosts of the voices past who might have sung or spoken at that microphone. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think seeing an old microphone, you know, used in such a context is 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 all is just plain fascinating. But, you know, I, I, I was wondering when I was walking through the show, you know, so much of the sound pieces need their own little room. And so you have this wall space or corridor space between them. And is it just sort of like, why not use the space? Or did you know from the beginning that you were going to include pieces that didn't, you know... Uh, like the scores, you know, there were actual just plain visual pieces. Well, I wanted from the get-go to have different texture to the show. I didn't want it to have the feeling of um, electronics trade showroom or something. I wanted (laughs) to have tuned environments, to have, like um, Camille Norman's, you know, microphone, to have an object, and then Marco Fusinato's score, which is a Zanakis score, um, yeah, that yeah. he tweaked. Um, he reproduced a Zanakis score, took five sheets, reproduced it one-to-one, chose a center point in each of the scores, and then drew lines from all the notes to that center point. 
Yeah. So you already mentioned Laurie Anderson, um, uh, who, by the way, is going to be our, our keynote speaker at our upcoming uh, Radio Vision Festival. Um, been doing amazing things for, for, for so many years. But you also worked with artists like Christian Markley. I know I saw some of his pieces in an, another show you did a few years ago. But I'm really curious if you could talk about how the role of technology has changed, because it seems that, you know, the tools, and you talk about this in the essay that, you know, say Christian has now to do the clock were different than what he and Laurie Anderson were doing work earlier. And so many of these younger artists in the show are really using technology like almost a different language. It's almost like a different language for them. No, I think some of the younger artists really, um, probably like your generation, grew up with a lot of, you know, um, tools in their hands. It wasn't that they had to go to a recording studio to do something. So it's very natural to work with both the software and the hardware. So it's just this another medium, another material. So I think there's an ease. Then, of course, as economies go up and down, then as the economy might get bad, then it's a lot of the DIY. So then you can do a lot in your garage. Yeah, and, and, you know, you talk about sort of the history of this discipline, sound art sort of being consigned or, or just, you know, at home in some of these DIY spaces and still in many of the cities where many of the artists come from. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what, you know, in other words, if it is a long time come due for museums to start to put on shows like this, what, why are these kind of art pieces or art disciplines so at home you know, where they've been situated in these smaller spaces for so long. Right. Well, your point is good. Did a lot of the work emerged out of alternative spaces, and museums now are venues more, are more comfortable with, say, video installation. So, you know, like here at MoMA, we have an incredible AV crew of about eight or nine individuals who are very, very savvy. I work with an exhibition designer who was also very savvy. And, you know, so we're able to create these environments for these pieces and work closely with the artists to really follow their aesthetic, their vision, and to, you know, contain sound. You know, maybe there's a little bit of a bleed like of the work of Susan Phillips, it comes down the hallway. Yeah, which is amazing, though. I like that. That that really draws you into that space. Right. And then the one we didn't talk about yet was Jana Winderen, whose work, um, she studied marine biology and then went to art school in London, did undergraduate and master's, and she puts these really sophisticated microphones, say, into the water, and she's recorded the sound of cod communicating. Who knew that cod (laughs) kind of talked to each other? (laughs) And then she also discovered when she was in Central Park, she had her microphone on and a bunch of bats surrounded her. So then she went back and slowed down that sound and discovered that she could really compose then with bat chirps. Yeah, yeah. So her installation has no visual, you walk in and it's quite dark, but there are 18 speakers and it's truly this tuned environment that yeah. unfolds. You know what, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, we, we hear so much, people are always talking about how visual imagery has changed because everyone has the means to make visual images in their pockets or their hands uh, or in their glasses now at, at all times. And I'm wondering what you would have to say about how our relationship to recording, because our, our camera phones also have voice recorders on them. They're not obviously used as much, but the fact that we have so many tools at our disposal, are we are we seeing a change towards the production of sound art? Oh, I, I think so. I think, like we were just talking a couple of minutes ago, I think it's, um, sound is a material, you know? It's silence, it's noise, but it's really something that you can almost sculpt with. So, and you can work with more and more sophisticated speakers so you can place them around and create environments or you could, you know. So, yes. Yeah. Well, it's a great show. How long is it up for? 
it's up through November 3, and we have a couple of events still coming. One is what we call our Modern Mondays on October 7. Christine Sun Kim will discuss her work. She has a couple of drawings in the show. Uh-huh. And then we'll have a treat on October 6. We have Royji Ikeda and Karsten Nikolai collaborating on a performance. So those are um, great events to look forward to, plus a symposium on October 16. Wow. All right. Well, I'll put links to that on the WFMU page. Barbara London, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. Yeah, Lovely it's to a, talk with you. It's a great show. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Barbara London is the associate curator in the Department of Media and Performance Art at MoMA. highly recommend uh, seeing that show before it closes. There's just so much going on, though, right now. I can see how you would just stand out in the street like a deer in the headlights. Uh, my absolute favorite event of the year is coming up this weekend. That's the uh, New York Art Book Fair, which is now in its eighth year. That's taking place at PS1. I don't know why it's one of my favorites because I'm always I always seem to be broke at exactly the same time every year, which means me just wandering around the crowded halls filled with amazing art book makers, dealers, artists, zinesters, photographers, just weeping. But I noticed that two very talented photographers, Adam Broomberg and Oliver Channerin, are here in town to talk about a book they're debuting at the festival, The Holy Bible. So I decided to meet up with them to chat about it. And it turns out that they are in town here in New York from their home in London because they have a lot going on. Hi, my name is Oliver Channerin, and Adam and I are here in New York for the opening of the new photography at MoMA. 2013. We're also here, we're also taking part in a group show at Apex Art, which is called Death of a Cameraman, which is um, very interesting. I'd recommend a visit. What's, what's going on in that show? Um, it's, uh, it, it's kind of quite broad, but it's essentially about the relationship between the camera and, and the gun. I, that's the way I would put it. And, um, and also the relationship between fiction and document. So you also have a book that that I'm here to talk to you guys about today. This coming weekend, we have the New York Art Book Fair, which has grown into this monstrosity of a uh, must-attend event here in New York. I mean, the number of people that pass through this thing, uh, it's just just staggering. And you have a book that's uh, uh, new, which I think will be uh, a hit at the fair. Can you guys uh, tell us about this? Well, it's called The Holy Bible. Uh, you're, just, you're going for it. <laughs> it's called the Holy Bible. That's right. It, it's actually an illustrated Bible. And we've taken the King James Version, which uh, we didn't know until we started the project, actually belongs to the Queen. And we had to get copyright from Her Majesty in order to do this production. Wow. So we have, uh, we've taken the book, um, which is both the New Testament and the Old Testament. It totals about 724 pages. And we've illustrated it. Um, looking on each page for a portion of text that we've underlined, and then we've placed a picture on that page. And the text and the image sort of relate to each other in sometimes very illustrative ways and other times in very obscure ways. There's actually a relationship between the show, the contribution that we've made to the MoMA show and this, in that in the MoMA show um, we have taken Brecht, book called The War Primer which was published in 55 we've kind of hijacked that and whereas his project was about World War II we speak about the war on terror and we've kind of pasted into that but when we were in the Brecht archive um, the archivist gave us Brecht's personal copy of his Holy Bible and when he ran out of notebooks 
he would cut out of newspapers and he would paste in pictures over the Bible. So somehow that stuck in the back of our minds and, and, and kind of resurfaced when we were working on this project. Yeah. So you got permission for the, from the Queen for the text. Now, where do the images come from? Can you talk about the archive that you worked with? Well, the images all come from one place. It's called the Archive of Modern Conflict, um, and it's based in West London, and it's a very peculiar place. Um, we spent a lot of time there, and there was something quite Borgesian about the whole process because our aim was to try to look through this whole archive and pick out images that we thought would work. But each day as we progressed through this archive, the front door would open and in would come new boxes. And this, it was clear that this archive was just growing and growing each day as we, it was an impossible and, and unending task. It's also, I mean, the, the remit is, is so-called from the beginning of photography to the present day, looking at notions and the different pictures of, of conflict. But of course that remit strays off. But what's so remarkable is it's almost a kind of unofficial account of conflict. For instance, they've got the biggest collection of private Nazi soldiers' personal albums. So you've got pictures there of young men you know, being intimate with their children, their wives, saying goodbye. And it's kind of a history, a narrative that we've never been allowed to see. And this this goes on through a number of levels. And so you'll see that the, the illustrations in our Bible are, are a kind of unofficial version of the war. But there's something quite important to mention is we started the project in conversation with a philosopher called Adi Ophir, who writes a small essay at the end of the book. And it, his, his narrative kind of became the kind of body, the structure, the backbone to the project. And to, to, to very briefly summarize his, his, um, his thesis, what he says is that the Bible is actually a parable for the growth of the modern state and modern governance. So he says God chooses his people, gives them a set of laws. When they disobey it, he punishes them. And he actually appears solely through punishment in, in the Bible. And he said we've somehow in, in contemporary society confused God with governance. So we're all born into this silent contract where the death penalty is okay, the prison system's okay, going to war in Iraq's okay. Why? You know, it's not okay for everyone, but somehow there's this kind of uh, silent pact we all born into. Sure. And it also seems as God as catastrophe or God as agent of destruction. And, you know, for many people, their relationship with the Bible is that's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament, where it seems that you you're, have a through line, kind of, it's the same God going through both. Is that fair to say? You're correct. The, 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 um, nature of the different chapters in the Bible are very different. As you, you know, the New Testament and the Old Testament are very distinct. But even within those chapters, uh, those, those parts, the chapters themselves differ a lot and um, have very different voices and very different qualities. And some are very poetic and some are very mundane and deal with stuff like hygiene and, and money and, and others are more poetic such as the Psalms that deal much more with the self. And so as we progressed through the different chapters, we did try to respond to those different voices. Yeah. Let's, let's grab the uh, book and open uh, to one of the chapters that you guys... I'd like to talk about Revelations, but you pick one that uh, maybe we can talk about some of the images and some of the text that you've underlined. Well, let's talk about the one you want to, about Revelations. I mean, um, just bef as we walked in, you mentioned the image of the World Trade Center, which kind of is towards the end of the book. And um, it's it's just, I think, what th this alludes to is, is the Bible is almost, the history of photography is almost biblical in scale. It's 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 got the pretense of, of trying to kind of document the whole of, of human history. And I think that we wanted to echo that. But what we did is almost, um, is, is end with an image like that towards the end of the book. Because... Um, I think it was it was a kind of remarkable moment, obviously in 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 history, but also in photographic history. It was, was the most documented event photographically, um, and we also, you know, photography is so drawn to to kind of to darkness, to catastrophe, as much as the Bible is. But what's very interesting is a lot of people have been very offended by some of the violent images in the book. But really, can you can you maybe like opening revelations? Can you or maybe? 
Well, I mean, it's full of violent images from people, you know, taking drugs to dead bodies to... But what our common reply to that is, is if you actually read the Bible, I've never read so so many kind of violent words. And why do we have, you know, why are we so offended by violent images, whereas text kind of gets off lightly? Yeah. Um, Well, Revelation certainly seems to be one where we have, you know, biblical prophecies of mass destruction and mass catastrophe. But you, wait, let's, let's look at another chapter here because you, you mentioned some of the other themes about you know, simple things like hygiene or love or, can we, or the self. Um, maybe you want to pick a chapter. And I'm, I'm curious to see uh, you talk about some of the things you're underlining in the relationship between the image and the text. Well, let's take this page I've just opened randomly. We're on page 171 of Samuel. And what we have is a photograph of a Japanese woman and she's lying on the bed naked, and there's a man, you're looking over the shoulder of a man, and he's pushing his head down against one of her breasts. And it's a very sensual image, but it's not clear exactly whether she's participating in this or it's something that's being forced upon her. So it's quite a, so it's quite a um, ambiguous image and very beautiful in, in a sub- sublime sense. And we've juxtaposed that with a, a part of the text we've underlined here. It says, And he went and fled and escaped and took an image and laid it on the bed. There was an image in the bed. And, of course, you know, the third participant is us, the, 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 the viewer of this, and which makes us the voyeur. And I think that's a big theme that runs through our practice in terms of photography, is that, you know, there's the person being photographed, there's the photograph as a fact, and then there's the person looking at it. And the biography of photography, I mean, I think in a hundred years' time, this book will be read in an entirely different way to the way it's being read today. Yeah. And the other thing to talk about is this repetition of a particular phrase that um, appears throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. And the phrase is, and it came to pass. And this phrase, for some reason, appears again and again and again. And we thought that we needed to somehow respond to that in some sort of, with some sort of conceptual gesture. Um, and the reason why we felt and it came to pass was important is that it alludes to a kind of miracle that happens. It's almost like and it came to pass is the phrase you have in a sitcom, you know, the, the, the meanwhile that comes up or, you know, what's going to happen next. And so we wanted to somehow respond to that. And we came across a collection of images in the archive that were dedicated to magic and to card tricks and to circus acts. And so we made a decision, let's, whenever it came to pass, let's put in a little trick, and a little, a little magic trick. And it's almost like the inverse of what the rest of the book is about. The rest of the book is about catastrophe. Um, and these little moments are kind of moments of miracles that happen. And of course, miracle, the miracle and the catastrophe are two sides of the same coin. One person's catastrophe is another person's miracle and vice versa. And so you have these little miracles that pop up throughout the book that sort of also lift the tone of it. Yeah, Yeah, and we're looking at an image of uh, a bird doing card tricks here. (laughs) And this is in First Kings. Um, So let's talk about the book itself. You know, today, uh, you know, right now, if someone was listening to us, it's so easier. It's just so easy to be able to Google your names or even go to the playlist page for this and, and see some of your images. But it still seems that photography books are one of those wonderful, rare uh, confluences where the physical object still has some special meaning to it. And we are holding this beautiful piece of art in our hand. I mean, you got the, <laughs> you got the copyright permission from the Queen, but it looks like you really spent a lot of time not just making this look like a Bible, but can you talk about the paper and the production yeah. that went into this? I think that was due to our publisher, Michael Mack from Mack, but they spent months um, researching a, a, a place that could actually afford to print four or five color prints on such thin paper. Because obviously the Bible is just black and white and it allows it to be that thin. So the production value is remarkable. And I think it is, like you say, you know, as a conceptual gesture, whacking pictures over the Bible and underlining it with a red pen is no genius thing. But I think when you're actually holding this object, it suddenly takes on a kind of very different sense to it. It suddenly feels more problematic, feels more intriguing. And I think, I think it very much is an object. Yeah. We w- can I just respond to that as well? Because we wanted um, this thing to look like a Bible. And we wanted that kind of confusing moment when you open it and you suddenly see that this thing has been intervened into. 
and we wanted to create that. So it was very important that we, you know, went to great lengths to make it look exactly like a Bible. In fact, one of um, our secret projects is to go to motels right through America and uh, swap the Bibles in every drawer with one of these. It's yeah. not so secret anymore. <laughs> but um, but yeah. just to respond as well to you, you were talking about this moment in book history, and I think we are at an extraordinary moment because we there is still this kind of fetish of the object and it is beautiful to hold this thing yeah. but w- w- will we be holding books in the future and i don't know i think we're at a really exciting moment where suddenly you've got this you know digital publishing and we've exploited that a bit with one of our projects where we made uh, the war primer where we only made 100 copies and then we were able to produce a digital version of it that was free and there's something kind of amazing about that and i'm really excited about the, the possibilities Sure, sure. Okay. But it seems that, you know, you mentioned the, the Nazi um, memories book earlier from the um, War Archive. I have a copy of that. That's a book that, you know, is impossible to find. It also has amazing production values. It's made to look like a family photo album, and it's called Nine Uncle. <laughs> but it seems that, uh, you know, as these books become more and more expensive to produce, they're produced in limited numbers, and, you know, it's like you have a few seconds to, to, to find them, and that's kind of what the energy you'll see this weekend at the New York Art Book Fair. It's, uh, you know, you'll see these things, but if you don't get it, it's gone. Um, but thank you guys very much for taking some time out to, to uh, talk with us about the Holy Bible, and uh, good luck with the rest of the project. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. So that's Adam Broomberg and Oliver Channerin. And the Holy Bible is going to be one of the more popular books at the New York Book Fair this weekend. At least, that's my, you know, analysis. That's, that is not to be taken as financial uh, planning advice in any way or form. This last uh, Thursday, I think there were like eight gazillion openings here in the city. Tons and tons of great photo shows up right now. The photographer Nick Brandt has a new show at Hasted Kreutler. Nick Brandt is famous for his majestic photos of African animals, lions, tigers, and, of course, elephants. You may even be aware of his majestic elephant photos, even if you don't know his work. But his new show is the third installment of his epic project. The first was called On This Earth. The second was A Shadow Falls. And the final chapter is now called Across the Ravaged Land. We met up at this gallery last Thursday to talk about his pictures and his conservation efforts. And it turns out that these three titles click together like Legos to form a complete sentence. The um, title combines with the titles of the previous book to form a sentence on this earth a shadow falls across the ravaged land Um, because there's been this progression from a kind of paradise that I was seeing in Africa at the beginning of the work through to the kind of more grim reality that's present today in Africa. You know, it's a sentence though, and I'm wondering if at the beginning when you started off, did you know where you're going to end up? Did you see the dark place where we end up in this uh, last chapter from the beginning? I'd love to admit to being that prescient. Um, I'm, I was always a something of a pessimist, but I never imagined that the destruction that we'd be seeing in the natural world in Africa today would occur so fast back 12 years ago. So I'd like to ask you about some connections between uh, the early work and uh, this final chapter, some echoes. Um, there's a photo in, in uh, the earlier collection of a line of elephants. Can you talk about that one? And then one of the most powerful images in your uh, uh, new show and in the book here of, of some humans we see for the first time. Sure. photograph from the previous work is called Elephants Walking Through Grass, which shows a long line of elephants coming kind of, you know, sort of heroically towards us. And at the, the front of the herd is this amazing matriarch uh, called Mariana, who was killed um, a year after I took the photo. And then when I went back uh, three years later to the same location in Amboseli, I uh, took 22 of the rangers from the foundation I founded called Big Life and set them up uh, on the lake bed with uh, the tusks 
of elephants that had been killed at the hands of man uh, in prior years, 2004 to 2009. And the line of guys uh, echoes the line of the elephants, except you know where there were elephants, there's now just men holding these tusks of elephants that were killed. And the ranger at the front of the photograph is holding tusks that I don't believe there is any elephant left alive on the African continent today with tusks this size. When you see the photograph, uh, they are, what, you reckon, at least, they're eight feet. I mean, how this elephant even walked around with tusks this size without them dragging on the ground. Those tusks today would probably bring about, they would bring in about half a million dollars in China. And that's the kind of battle we face where ivory is that valuable how you keep those amazing creatures unharmed alive uh, in, a, in an impoverished country and then the, the trilogy ends with a photograph in the show of these elephant footprints disappearing off into the horizon uh, on this kind of dried stark lake bed um, and it's you know where are those tracks going uh, where is that where is that elephant going is it ever going to make it back and is mankind going to come to its senses and allow those elephants to keep on crossing that land for generations to come looking at your art it seems that we're ending with a harrowing defeat and it seems that you also had this foundation that you've had hand in hand while doing this project uh, at least in the more recent years and i'm wondering you know as the foundation boss or someone who set that up do you feel equally as defeated as it, as i'm feeling from the art? No. Um, I was angry and passive watching the destruction going on, and I started the foundation, Big Life Foundation, to try and make a difference because I did see that there was a possibility and there was hope, um, and it was better to be, it is better to be angry and active rather than angry and passive. And with that in mind, we have had surprising amount of success over the three years that Big Life's been running. Uh, we now have 315 ranges across 31 outposts across 2 million acres. And with that, the poaching has been dramatically reduced in this ecosystem that traverses southern Kenya and northern Tanzania. So even though there are many battles being lost around Africa elsewhere for lack of funding for government protection, NGO protection, we are helping make a difference in, um, in this particular corner of Africa because what people don't always understand is a lot of these national parks are tiny. Something like, something like Amboseli is 100,000 acres. And 80% of the time, those animals aren't even in that area. As soon as they leave the area of the, of the national park, the protected area, they're in unprotected areas where people are farming, they've got livestock, and they are completely unprotected. And the only future of conservation in the wild in so many places on the planet is the support of the community. Um, and that's what we do. We, 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 all our rangers are, uh, they're local, locals who are locally employed and... Um, it's, it's, it's the only way forward. The people support conservation, and conservation supports the people. You know, uh, you talk about the rangers. We, I'm assuming um, some of the rangers we see in your photo are, are ones you're working with. Is that Yes, right? yes. All, all the rangers in those photographs are rangers uh, employed by Big Life. Yeah. What's fascinating, though, this is the first book that we're seeing. This is the point in your narrative where we see humans. Mm -hmm. Up until now, we have not seen humans. And at the same time, there's, you know, I feel that what we're seeing in a lot of the darker photos here is evidence of human poaching, but yet the humans we're seeing, I guess, are trying to, to turn things around. Yeah, um... It's it's it would have been very uh, it would have been too easy to just take photographs of the poachers and that just be a kind of mm, uh, photojournalism. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to do was kind of find more potent images using those ranges with these tusks that we got from the uh, ivory strong rooms where they were stored and, you know, create these lines of, of ranges echoing the, sh the line of the, the elephants. I wanted to ask you, though, about just, you know, simple editing, you know, thinking about how these images resonate with the whole story. It seems, again, like I was fascinated looking at some of these photos, how if I had seen them perhaps earlier in the first part of the sentence, they would have, they would have looked different. Like, there's something 
I guess because of the context, extremely saddening about this photo. And if you can maybe describe it, but it seems perhaps if it was in there, we'd see this maybe more warmer moment. You might notice I, I always photograph in, uh, in cl with cloud cover. You know, like Woody Allen always loves shooting in cloud cover in New York, and I love, sh love shooting with cloud cover in the middle of Africa. Um, it gives it a more kind of somber uh, quality. Um, we should, I guess, mention these photographs are all black and white. Um, uh, so this, the, these photographs here are of um, an elephant mother with a baby lying on the ground, but there's this sort of somber, melancholic quality. You're not even sure if the, uh, the baby is alive or dead. And the way she's posing with her trunk resting almost forlornly on the ground, yeah, it's, it's meant to have a sort of give you a feeling of, is, there, is, this, is this alive or dead? Um, I do think sometimes you know, people talk about how these photographs kind of move them to tears, and I do wonder whether they're actually bringing their knowledge of what is happening to the animal world and the destruction of it to these photographs, and that gives the photographs to a degree the melancholy quality. Um, I take photographs and have always taken photographs of animals as no different from human beings. I'm taking portraits of sentient creatures who to me are very little, are not that different from us. Um, so in earlier Early, the earlier books, the elephants had this sort of kind of regal majesty, and that's how I saw them. But I felt this new work had to um, reflect the more kind of melancholy, somber world that I now see when I go there. Vulnerability, too. Right. And do you have, uh, uh, you, I feel like I can hear it in your voice, and especially from your photos, do you feel uh, uh, that you're getting to know each one of these animals that you're... There are certain elephants in particular that um, I am extremely fond of and have spent many weeks trying to get the sort of perfect portrait of and I'll just keep going back and back and back and wait for them to present themselves for their portrait. Um, you know, there's this lovely boy who's uh, this huge elephant with massive tusks um, who was unfortunately called Craig which is a terrible name for a giant, glorious elephant like this. He should have been called Ulysses, but the poor, poor thing ended up getting called Craig. Um, and he's just, you know, just if there's that feeling of him posing for his portrait, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. Just, just as I would photograph a human being in a studio. Yeah. So having done this for so many years now, do you feel that, especially with the elephants, that they had any sense of what you were doing with them when it comes to just being photographed by you repeatedly? You talk about spending days and days trying to get a portrait. Did you have any sense that they had... What did they think that you were doing? Oh, I think if we're not careful, we could get into too much anthropomorphizing. Um, I don't know. I, all I know is they were very, very relaxed around me but it's precisely that level of trust which sometimes tragically makes it incredibly easy for a poacher to um, kill them Nick Brent's photos are on display at Hasted Kreutler in Chelsea, New York the project is called Across the Ravaged Land and you can find that as a book as well, just published from Abrams. I am Dr. Lisa Ann Gershwin, and I'm the author of Stung on Jellyfish Blooms and the Future of the Ocean. Uh, and, uh, wow, speaking to you from gorgeous, sunny New Caledonia in the middle of the South Pacific, and I'm looking out on a beautiful glassy bay uh, at 7 in the morning, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm actually looking out over a bay of dugongs. I phoned up Lisa Ann Gershwin because I wanted to talk to her about jellyfish after reading a review of her book, Stung, in the NYRB. You can find a link to this review on today's show page. It's kind of mind-blowing. I bet you didn't know that the horseman of the apocalypse was actually a jellyfish. But it's true. The jellyfish are taking over our oceans, turning them all into seas of jelly. So I called Lisa Ann Gershwin up to find out more. And as you will now hear, she really likes talking about jellyfish. Jellyfish are 
incredible. Yes, they're slimy and scary and, um, you know, all that, but they're also primitive and fascinating and beautiful. And I, I think in some ways you've got to admire that, you know, they've been around for, you know, close to a billion years and they haven't needed to change. So everything around them, you know, things have grown legs and grown eyes and grown fins and, you know, walked on land and breathed air and grown wings and developed brains and learned to fly and, you know, all kinds of things have happened around them. You know, things have evolved and gone extinct and the dinosaurs came and went and you know all these things have happened all around them and jellyfish have just been cruising along unaffected by all this noise going on around them so what is it that that makes them so resilient their their body style and their lifestyle is so variable that it's resilient to just about any problem that comes up and it's not only resilient but adaptable you know they are the ultimate weeds they they are so incredibly tenaciously weedy they can survive just about any temperature from nearly freezing to so warm you and I would wilt um, you know they don't need to eat they can go a long time without eating they simply degrow and then when they find food again they just start regrowing and it doesn't affect them at all and you know it, it, they can reproduce in an unbelievable number of ways they can clone in 13 different ways come on they can clone in 13 different ways they can survive just about anything and come out of it just fine. You actually introduce us to an immortal jellyfish. Yes. Or, or a zombie je- jellyfish. Yes. Not not sure what it is exactly. Oh my God, Turritopsis is the most amazing creature you can imagine. So it is truly biologically immortal. Um, it, it, you know, okay. So what did that? Sorry, let me explain. So when you squish it, kill it, chop it, you know, whatever you do to it, right? You, you kill it. It falls to the bottom dead, just like anything would. Or it can die of natural causes. It doesn't matter. You don't have to murder it. It can die of natural causes. But anyway, you end up with a dead jellyfish, right? So it falls to the bottom, just like anything does. And it disintegrates, just like anything does. But instead of disintegrating and rotting and becoming goo and then organic matter, it actually, the cells re-aggregate and form new jellyfish polyps. And the polyps then mature and bud off baby jellyfish, which then grow and die, and instead of disintegrating and going to mush, they re-aggregate and form new polyps again. And this has now been successfully carried out many, many times in the laboratory through this whole cycle repeatedly. And it's really real. It's not just a laboratory thing. Like, it really happens. Absolutely fascinating. Truly biologically immortal. This animal never dies. Okay, so here's what I want to ask you. You say that we've spent eons ignoring the jellyfish or or avoiding them. But now you're claiming that we don't have a choice anymore because the jellyfish are coming. But is this, like, an invasion? Or, like, what exactly is going on here? We've been ignoring jellyfish as a research subject for a really long time. And I argue to our peril because they're getting attention blooming in such huge numbers that they're actually... In some cases, the dominant organism in ecosystems, in many cases, they're threatening fish populations. Um, In some cases, they've actually flipped marine ecosystems to the extent that the fish can no longer survive in these ecosystems. The jellyfish are really interesting in what they do. It's a brutally simple way that they do it, but they eat 
the eggs and larvae of fish and crustaceans and mollusks and things like that. And they eat the plankton that the larvae would eat. So this double whammy of predation and competition is enough to actually drive a population down, like of, you know, fish or crustaceans, whatever, like a whole ecosystem, really. They can drive populations and ecosystems down, and they can keep them down, because then when, you know, a few remaining larvae are born, they eat them, or they outcompete them. And so it, the thing is, in a healthy ecosystem where there's a good balance of fish and crustaceans and mollusks and, you know, all the other things, it doesn't look like jellyfish can actually gain power. Like, they, they can't tip the scale because they don't have enough competitive edge to overtake fish. Fish are smart, fish are fast, you know. So jellyfish can't overtake fish in a healthy ecosystem. But when ecosystems are damaged, like too much overfishing or too much pollution or not enough oxygen because of coastal stuff going on, you know, with pollution and sewage and, you know, whatever, or, um, you know, if there's a lot of coastal construction because jellyfish polyps prefer artificial substrates, well, many do at least, um, you know, so there's different things going on, and when these effects drive down fish populations enough that it tips the balance in favor of the jellyfish, then the jellyfish can actually move in and fill that gap and keep the fish from being able to come back. And this is what we're seeing in many, many places around the world. So have they always been kept in check by other species, or are they just built this way, like designed to just take over everything if they can? Yeah, look, you hit it right on the nose. So... Um, their natural state, in the absence of predators and competitors, is to bloom into huge numbers. And we know this through fossil evidence, and we know this simply by what they do. When you look at the biology and ecology of jellyfish, it becomes clear that in the absence of predators and competitors, they flourish in huge numbers. So we know this. Um, we humans are changing our ecosystems into ecosystems that are favorable for jellyfish. We are simplifying our ecosystems through doing what we do. We fish extensively, we pollute extensively, we are changing the temperature of the oceans to stimulate the jellyfish to grow faster and breed more. They love warmer water. Oh, they just love warmer water. And, you know, all of these things are favoring jellyfish and disfavoring us. So in your book, you, you make a joke or, or you hint that in the future we might be eating a lot of jellyfish sushi, which is perhaps a, a, a lighter way of saying that we are totally screwed. Like, how screwed are we? We've got to do something. We are in a planetary emergency with jellyfish taking over. And they're not taking over every bay and harbor, and not every species of jellyfish is taking over, but there are many places that have already flipped to being dominated by jellyfish, and many other places where jellyfish are a recurring problem that I believe are in danger of flipping to being dominated by jellyfish. So I think we must do something. And by the way, I must say, I really love jellyfish. I think they're beautiful, but not at the expense of everything else. I think a balance is good. I really do. I think a balance is good. I haven't warmed up to the idea of sushi with jellyfish or sushi with tofu or sushi with spam. I just, I'm not there yet, you know? You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show.
Beatles. listening to WFMU and it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show an interview with Lee and Sean from Burger Records. Burger Records today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show and to start you off here's a Burger Records artist King Tough with Sun Medallion on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show on WFM. You. My name is Sean Borman, and I'm from Burger Records. Sean, welcome to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Thank you. It is truly an honor. We're huge fans. Sean, I was curious. Burger Records. Who else is Burger Records? Because you're saying Sean Borman from Burger Records, but there's some other burgerers, aren't there? Like Lee. Oh, there's many. There's thousands, if you really think about it. But of the the head ones, there's Lee Record. He's the guy I started Burger with back in 2007, and. Uh, there's Brian Berger. He's the guy I started the record store with. And there's Bobby Berger, who plays in Gap Dream and also works here. He was our first employee. And there's Burger Patty, and she's our second employee. And all of us make up the core group that is Burger Records. And what can you tell the people that don't know about Burger Records? What is Burger Records? A cassette label and a store? Period? It's a movement. It's a, it's a feeling. It's a... It's something more than just a store or a record label. It's something to get people excited about music in general and not just a specific kind of music, but the feelings that music gives you, whether it's pop music from Britney Spears or country music or garage music or punk or whatever. Like We're into all of it, and uh, I think it shows in what we put out. And We released tons of cassettes and LPs. We've put out over 50 LPs since 2007, and we've put out over 500 cassettes since uh since 2007 as well and it's just a huge thing that kind of snowballed into something bigger than any of us ever expected we began the nerdwater human serviette radio show with king tough sun medallion what can you tell the people about that sean from burger records 
I first heard some medallion uh, from a friend or a burger fan who said, you need to really check this out back in 2008 when the album uh, was first coming out. And I fell in love with it. And I went for like two weeks. I was just thinking about it and like, man, I really want to put this on cassette. I really, really want to. And I was telling all my friends about it. And I told my friend Devin Williams about it. And he uh, he said that his friend Alan was childhood friends with King Tough. And it was just like a really loose connection. So he got his phone number and I cold called King Tough while he was in the middle of practice. And I was like, hey, this is Burger Records and we want to put out your cassette. And he was like, sure. And so we did it. And uh, and it's been a beautiful, friendly relationship ever since. We, we did the cassette for years and sold thousands and thousands of, of cassette because it was pretty much only available in that format. And then we reissued the LP in, uh, earlier this year and sold tons. It's the highest charting, uh, highest charting reissue on the college charts so far this year. And uh, and we're really, really proud of everything we did. It's a crazy classic album. It's one of the best things we've ever put out. Sean from Burger Records, you first contacted me because you saw my interview with Lil Wayne. Yeah, we love all of your interviews, and we love pop music. So, uh, so I saw you interview Lil Wayne. I wanted to see all the stuff you dig up about him. And then you subtly mentioned, if I ever ran across Kesha, that I should ask her if she wants to do a cassette with Burger Records. Any luck on that? Because I haven't had any luck. I have not been able to get an interview with Kesha. Sorry yeah. about that, Sean. Um, I would. I, we have like a really loose connection. She's like right on the outskirts of people we know. We know people who have like before she got famous, uh, hooked up weed for her and performed with her and stuff but so i think there's like a chance that we could do it and i love pop music and her first two or her first album and the ep that followed were really really excellent examples of pop music i thought and i uh, just really really loved it well, that's what's so amazing about Burger Records. We're speaking here to Sean from Burger Records. Woo. We're having the Burger Records caravan of stars go across the nations and continents coming up. Check burgerrecords.org. I noticed your .org. Was that 